I mean, these are stories I that I've heard from a lot of different people in different ways. And just to see them all here, all in one place, um, with many different people saying pretty much the same thing in different scenarios, um, and it, it was not surprising, but it was certainly depressing. Twenty eighteen will go down in history as a year of reckoning. Me Too started in October twenty seventeen, but it was really this year that some men's behaviour came back to bite them, and we saw a series of sackings and resignations as the status quo started to shift. I'm Navjit Lada, head of scholarly comment and Christmas editor. The continuing impact of Me Too across the world has prompted another round of thinking about women's experiences in medicine, which can be seen in this year's Christmas Journal. We have an essay from Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Laurie Garrett, outlining the systematic exclusion of women from the upper echelons of science and healthcare. We also have an editorial about maternal discrimination from Kate Lovett, Dean of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, that builds on the work of two of our guests on the podcast today, Esther Chu and Eleni Linos, who have asked women in the US about their experiences of being mothers while working as doctors. But before we talk to them, I'm joined by Sarah Lowry from the Royal College of Physicians, who has been collating women's experiences of being doctors from the past 500 years of medicine for a new exhibition that's currently running there. Sarah, thank you for joining us. Could you talk to us a little bit more about that exhibition? Um, yes, of course. So um, the exhibition is called This Vexed Question, 500 Years of Women in Medicine. Um, and um, it was the, the thinking behind it was very much because 2018 is a, a very significant year for lots of reasons, um, partly because um, obviously it's the centenary of some women getting the vote in the UK. Um, it's the 70th year anniversary of the NHS. It's the centenary of the end of the um, First World War, which obviously offered some opportunities to women, but also put some limitations on what they could do as well. Um, so, um, and it's also the 500th anniversary of the Royal College of Physicians as well. And certainly for very much of the first 400 years of that history, women were very much excluded from the college. Um, in pretty much every way. In fact, it was built into the the charter, the founding charter, that women were completely banned from either training or practicing medicine. Um, so I think um, the college thought it was a good opportunity to highlight some of the sort of both famous and forgotten women practitioners in medicine over the past 500 years. And of course, it's extremely topical. I guess it's been very topical this year and towards the end of last year with the the Me Too movement and the Times Up campaigns. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the the exhibition was very much to try and encourage that debate. Um, you know, just to show what's changed, but also to think, you know, what are the debates that are still ongoing? What still needs to be done? What is the situation we're currently in? And it's obviously a topic that elicits incredibly strong emotions um, and people's opinions don't always agree at all. So the exhibition was a way of kind of promoting that debate. And as part of it, there's a there's a wall where people can put their opinions and it's occasionally been quite fiery discussion. <laughs> well, um, tell us a little bit more about the exhibition then. Tell us about some of the um, stories that have been showcased. 
Um, yes, yeah, so the idea is to cover a 500-year period, um, and it's not just looking at women doctors, um, but women working in lots of different capacities in the medical field. So it would cover um, also nurses, midwives, um, and particularly women working in a caring capacity in a domestic environment as well. So I think obviously women were very much blocked um, through many channels from from sort of being paid for practicing medical arts but very much expected to be the people that cared for family members children husbands other relatives in a non non-paid capacity in a domestic environment that very much fell to to their role um, so looking at that aspect as well and are there any particular um, stories that stand out to you or any favorites that you have um, well, just thinking about the, the domestic environment and, and that sort of caring capacity, one of the really interesting things at the college is that we have um, what we call recipe books. So um, often, you know, hundreds of years old books, which included both recipes in a sort of food sense, but also recipes for medical treatments um, and what went into those, how to make those, how to use those, which were very much passed down from mother to daughter through generations. So we have quite a lot of those in the collection which have been um, brought out to show in the exhibition, which I always found very fascinating. Um, I mean, there are obviously some very famous women who would be well known who are included in the displays. So Elizabeth Garrett is a good example um, for first women to qualify um, in the UK to practice medicine and, and kind of got through through a loophole in the apothecary system, which was very quickly closed up after she after she managed to get through. Um, and she also had sort of suffragettes she was involved in some suffragette activities. One of the really nice um, items in the collection actually is a letter that she's written to the the um, um, leadership in the hospital that she was working at before she went on a suffragette march to say, I might be arrested as part of my activities for this march. But if I am, then I've covered all my duties. You know, this person will cover me in that capacity. This person will cover me in that capacity. And it's very much a kind of woman's attitude towards that kind of situation. You know, this might happen, but this person will look after the children. Making this sure all the responsibilities exactly. are taken care of. Yes, yeah. yes. So she's a very famous person that's, that's kind of showcased a lot. Um, but also looking at people that, you know, forgotten stories or hidden stories. Often women were operating in a kind of slightly clandestine way because they weren't really allowed to practice. So that kind of element comes out as well. Um, there's a very interesting um, case of a lady called, I think it was Jane Pemmel or Jane Pemmel, um, which is quite fascinating. So the Royal College of Physicians wouldn't license women, um, but the church could and did sometimes license women to practice medicine um, and there was a lady called Jane Pamel who um, her the the documents relating to her case are um, date back to the 17th century and she writes and says you know I've lost my husband in the war I've lost all my possessions in the fire of London um, I'm practicing as a surgeon it's the only income I have for supporting my family so it's just showing you know right back to the 17th century women were practicing the medical arts to support their families um, and so there are a lot of um, letters of testimonial letters that were written to support her from satisfied patients. Um, and she did get a license from the Archbishop of Canterbury oh. to practice as a surgeon um, in the 17th century. So that was a, a really interesting story. Um, and then another woman called Isabel Hutton, who um, I personally found very interesting. She practiced in the First World War. She was a qualified um, doctor um, and obviously made a huge contribution in looking after 
injured troops in the First World War. Um, but when she came back to the UK after the war, she married um, and was then prevented from working because she was married. Um, and I think people often see, you know, the First World War, and it was, you know, an opportunity for women. And women did go and practice medicine and do all kinds of things. While men were at war, there were opportunities for them to get into the workplace. Um, and it did advance opportunities for female physicians in lots of ways. So before that, it was very difficult for women to treat men, for example. Um, and Elizabeth Garrett herself said, you know, she wasn't able to treat men she could only treat women but obviously the first world war sort of brushed aside some of those just by necessity but the fact that when she married she came back and wasn't allowed to practice anymore and found it very difficult to get a job also shows that that kind of protectionism that was going on after the first world war in terms of protecting men's jobs coming back from mm. the front um, was quite detrimental to the women's cause as well um, so that was that was a very interesting story mm, i thought really interesting um, I mean, my role was particularly in curating stories um, from the oral history collection, both the one that we've been collecting more recently and recording more recently, sort of over the last four years or so. Um, but also um, there's a collection that we, that the Royal College of Physicians recorded in partnership with Oxford Brookes University, um, or gosh, what would it have been called then? Um, Oxford Polytechnic, I guess, um, in the 1980s and 90s. Um, and those interviews can now be found through the um, Oxford Brookes University radar online library system. Um, and we've got recordings with people like Margaret Turner Warwick, who was the first female president of the Royal College of Physicians, and Sheila Sherlock, who was a, a very impressive women physicians sort of 1940s and 50s what are the sort of themes that have come out over the kind of the long the long term you know the 500 years that the exhibition spans mm. yes uh, i think it's interesting some of the the recordings with for example margaret turner warwick um and her interview uh, asks her you know what do you think of this issue of women in medicine and she basically says don't think about it you said you were one of seven ladies oh. in a hundred oh. in oxford in oh. 1950 when you graduated oh. uh, now the undergraduate schools have roughly 50 percent oh. women oh. Oh. now that's a major change oh. what's it like being oh. being a woman in medicine oh. forget it really i mean i think you do very much better if you do forget it you just get on with the job and I believe that the lady colleagues that I have the greatest respect for take that view as well. I think there are grave dangers uh, in promoting their own interests uh, and uh, I'm unrepentant of that view. Um, so I think if the door is open now and I, from my own experience over 50 years, is that I've had a very fair run for my money. I haven't had everything I, I wanted, and somebody else has been better at it, and so be it. And maybe there was a bit of prejudice, and so I had to go to the EGA for a time, but it actually gave me a huge dimension, and that was life. And I think that's quite an interesting input into the debate. You know, a lot of people would disagree with that. Um, but I think that just shows that, you know, it's not just perhaps men that were putting forward attitudes like this or you know that's actually very prominent women in the medical profession and Sheila Sherlock says something very similar actually don't think about it just get on with it. I imagine that um, your sex has never been a handicap to you in your medical career. Not, Have you? Not really. Feminists would like to say it has uh, that you know but I really don't think so. You ran for presidency of the college and you came close to, to election um, do you think that that was, in, in any sense, still a discrimination? Probably. 
I think it's. Probably, I think there is still but, a slight. Uh, I wouldn't be. Uh, mm. I'm not worried that I didn't get it because I mm. think I had more interesting things to do. I think it's a disgrace that a club like the Athenaeum doesn't yes. let women in. Mm, mm. And my husband's a member of the Athenaeum. He attended the meeting when the thought of ladies being admitted. And you should have seen those old fuddy-duddies getting up, including members of our profession. Yes. Saying, well, that's what, what that I think I mean, is... This sort of thing is ridiculous. Yes. But um, I think a lot of the trouble in, with women in, is that they really don't give their mind to it as much as they should. And they perhaps don't have such a good husband as I have. So, you know, not particularly sympathetic, or um, which I think is, is very interesting and just shows that the debate's been ongoing for, you know, many, many years. Mm. Um, in terms of some of the aspects that come out through the oral history, um, I mean, women who are talking about their practice in the 60s, 70s and 80s talk a lot about some of the questions that they were asked at interviews. So, you know, what would your husband think if you were applying for this job, for example, or you know, how do your domestic responsibilities fit in with you doing this job? And they say, you know, we wouldn't be allowed to ask that now. That's just no way that that, that would be asked. Or women going for interviews at medical school and being asked, you know, if you get married, would you be prepared mm. to be an anaesthetist and work part time, for example? Um, so that kind of aspect, which people sort of point out and say has changed. Um, there's a very interesting um interview extract with with Linda Luxon she talks about going for her consultant um, interview at a big hospital when I was applying for my consultant job you know I was told I had to wear my hair tied back I wasn't to have my hair down I was to wear my skirt below my knees and this was somebody trying to be helpful it wasn't somebody being unpleasant it was one of the consultants I worked for who was always extremely nice to me and supportive but obviously thought by saying this by I suppose trying to make me look as, I don't know what, as unfeminine as possible, <laughs> I was more likely to get the job. I don't know what he thought, but certainly I was given strict instructions about what to wear. And as by the time I applied, I was expecting my first child. He didn't know that. I didn't dare say, because I, I just was convinced they'd never have appointed me to anything if they'd known I was having a baby. So I suppose that was a sexist attitude, but I went on and had my baby and they appointed me, so <laughs> at the end of the day it didn't really matter very much. But, um, I mean, it would be things that would be completely unacceptable now. I mean, to tell a woman how to wear her hair would not be appropriate, would it? It's extraordinary, really, isn't it, when you think back. I was told at the time that I was too young to join the medical committee, which is ridiculous. I mean, either you're a consultant or you're not a consultant. You can't be too young a consultant. And after two or three years, the same gentleman who told me to tie my hair back, etc., came and apologised that they, I still wasn't on the medical committee. And I had summoned up enough courage by them because they couldn't really get rid of me. I, they'd already appointed me. And I did say to him, well, I really feel like a second-rate consultant here. The medical committee was the committee of all the consultants who at that time ran the hospital because the system was so different. And about two months after that, I was invited to join but I mean it was three years I'd been a consultant for three years by then um, so sort of being blocked again from perhaps getting into a position where you might be able to have an influence on how things were done and I when I read the article that um, Esther and Eleni wrote they made some mention of that as well that you perhaps women are kept out of these positions of authority where perhaps they could begin to change the system from inside which mm. is interesting so certainly people do talk about how things change um, and certainly in terms of things like maternity provision for example um, so having a child in the NHS in the 1960s would be quite different from having a child in the NHS in the 1990s where maternity provision has begun to change and people actually do get paid time off and opportunities um, would be forthcoming in that sense so and and again I think um, you know an interesting issue with the 
paper that was written about practice in the States is that I, I think the maternity leave situation is incredibly different between the UK and the US. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of people in that US article were talking about how they, you know, just didn't get any maternity leave at all. And it was incredibly hard and it having to accrue holiday time and, you know, really getting no leeway at all, which would have been a situation for women in the NHS at a certain point, but obviously began to change and sort of hopefully improved their their situation um although i'm not i have to say a practicing medic and i can't comment on you know whether that's the reality now but certainly the women that we interviewed through the oral history seem to suggest that that situation improved significantly thank you sarah and you mentioned that new paper from america there which is called physician mothers experience of workplace discrimination a qualitative analysis And now would be a good point to turn to two of the authors of that paper who are joining us from their busy hospitals by Skype. Um, So you may hear a little background noise as a result, just for added ambience. Please forgive us for that. Um, So welcome to the podcast, Eleni Linos and Esther Chu. Uh, Could I get you to introduce yourselves? Maybe Eleni first. My name is um, Eleni Linos. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm a physician and a researcher. I work in California and um, I'm uh, one of the authors of this uh, this qualitative study on maternal discrimination. Thank you. And Esther? I'm Esther Chu. I'm an emergency medicine physician and researcher in Portland, Oregon in the U.S. And I am a co-author on the study of maternal discrimination with Dr. Linos and also co-authored a piece a humorous piece for the BMJ this month describing new terminology for types of gender bias. So we'll dive straight into discussing the um, paper that we've just published in the Christmas issue on um, maternal discrimination. Why did you particularly focus on um, this experience of um, physicians' experience of being mothers? Uh, so for this study, we really want to cone down on the very specific experience of maternal discrimination so that we could start to understand it better and see how it manifests among uh, women physicians, uh, particularly who are mothers. Um, we are both part of a number of social media groups, very large and active ones, where um, the members are all both mothers and physicians. And it really seemed like certain experiences rose to the surface as being common to women who are physicians and mothers. And we wanted to capture those. And also, um, we saw that these experiences were fairly universal with very few uh, standardized or um, well-developed solutions. So it really seemed like we needed to start investigating this so that we could move towards making a better workplace for all parents, um, including mothers. Eleni, I'll direct the next question to you um, then. So just a little bit more then about um, whose experience we're looking at here. Can you tell us a little little bit more about um, who was involved in your study? Of course. So this was a, um, um, a survey, an anonymous voluntary survey of a large online community of physician mothers. And we know from uh, some of the demographics that this group is representative in some ways of uh, U.S. or American physician women. So they represent all medical specialties um, uh, they have a very wide age, uh, number of children, geographic distribution. 
Um, and so we believe that we've captured experiences from many different types of physician uh, uh, women and physician mothers. Um, but the survey was posted on an online forum specifically uh, for physician mothers. And um, the obviously the full details are online in the paper, but Eleni, perhaps you could give us an overview um, of what you found. I think there were specific categories that your findings fell into. Perhaps you could talk us through those. Yes. So specifically what makes the study unique is that um, we were able to really interpret women's stories in their own words. And we were able to classify, review the stories and classify them into themes. Um, and what we found was that not only did we did women report um, experiences of discrimination um, that related to, to the actual to the actual experience itself, but we were able to also identify situations that brought up the underlying drivers, the structural institutional, um, parameters that may influence these experiences. And we were also able um, to identify the downstream effects, the effects on the physician herself, but also the effects on the healthcare system um, and other downstream effects. And um, Esther, were there any themes or experiences that um, stood out to you while doing this work? I think the really important thing for us was how the outcomes were not just limited to, say, the career satisfaction of the women involved. You know, when women talk about inequity, often people will try to put it back on us, like um, have a better attitude or keep going or tough it out, as if it is just a minor wellness issue. Um, but what we found in our study um, is what was consistent with our personal experiences, which is really that these have a major effect on our careers. Um, and because we are healthcare providers, these have major effects on our, on our patients and on our healthcare systems. So I think this goes beyond just our work preferences. This is really about making um, the people who deliver healthcare healthier so they can deliver better healthcare. Um, and it's not just um, the women. I think we are seeing what is described is that the entire health system really suffers when um, when when uh, there is not an equitable and a safe and a respectful work environment. Eleni, you mentioned some of the structural drivers and downstream effects, and um, perhaps you could mm-hmm. both go into some of those. So, so one example that I found quite striking was the description um, or the story one participant told us that said she she had been ignored in a code situation. So in an emergency situation, um, her her instructions, her medical instructions were ignored. Um, And another participant describes a similar situation where patient care is, or patient lives are put at risk because of disrespect or because um, uh, other team members do not follow the instructions by someone who may not look like a, a, a typical doctor. And those are situations where, uh, as Dr. Chu men- mentioned, discrimination goes beyond affecting the individual to affecting patient safety and the entire healthcare system. 
What is very striking when you read the paper is just how broad ranging um, these experiences are. I imagined before I read this that, you know, it was going to be about uh, things that are specifically related to motherhood or pregnancy. But actually, it it seems to have much more far reaching consequences than that. Uh, Did that was that something that came across to you or did it surprise you the extent to which people felt the kind of repercussions of this? Um, Did it surprise us that it was so general? I don't think we were surprised. Eleni, you can jump in too. Um, I don't know that surprise was really the the feeling that we had. Um, I mean, I think it was painful to read some of these comments, but at the same time, they felt so familiar. I mean, these are stories that I've heard from a lot of different people in different ways. And just to see them all here, all in one place, um, with many different people saying pretty much the same thing in different scenarios, um, it it was not surprising, but it was certainly depressing. And, um, and I do think, I think the gender bias and the, and the maternity bias kind of blend together. You know, it's, it's very hard to tell where one starts and where the other stops. And some of these comments, um, start with somebody saying, uh, you know, um, uh, women don't make great surgeons or whatever, you know, and then, and it's a general statement. And then they'll sort of drift into some comments that relate to uh, childbirth and having babies. And then some of them, it's just hard to tell, you know, is it all related to the fact that we have childbearing potential and we're expected to be distracted by our, our parenting responsibilities in a way that men are not? Um, or are there other things that go along with that, just having these communal rather than agentic qualities like we're supposed to have? Um, is it that because we're there, we really fall out of what we're seen as our appropriate role? Or is it that people think that our priorities are kind of messed up? I mean, it's just all kind of mixed together. Um, so it is, um, you know, it is a complicated thing. It's hard to really sort out the you know, the relative contribution of a general gender bias versus a maternal bias, but certainly it's all in there um, and uh, and can make for some uncomfortable moments as you, particularly as you go through training. Uh, and I think that really comes out in these comments. Um, so Sarah, having heard Eleni and Esther talk about their paper where they look at um, the, the experiences of physician mothers, um, did any of those themes and experiences sort of resonate with the experiences of um, women in the exhibition or the sort of oral histories that you've um, encountered? Um, so one thing that, that particularly struck me actually was when they were talking about um, how maybe people's opinions were disregarded or that perhaps women were talked over or or their opinion wasn't valued. And they were talking about the impact that that had on patient safety. Um, Some people, so a particular person who's sort of very high up in the research world, in medical research, um, was talking about how, you know, perhaps if she disagreed with somebody in a meeting, um, then she was told that she should be at home looking after her her son rather than in a meeting um, of that kind. Um, and I was thinking, you know, with that kind of attitude, this was obviously a long time ago. Um, and she, again, said that people wouldn't be able to say that kind of thing now. Um, but it does make you wonder about the impact that that might have on, you know, in terms of medical research as well, if people weren't encouraged or, you know, even incredibly high achieving, very accomplished people to put their views and thoughts forward in that environment, but were kind of put down and, um, 
you know, what impact that might have had on research that was being done as well um, in terms of, you know, not encouraging women to to say what they thought or um, put their view forward in that way. Mm. Really interesting. I think one of the things that we're seeing sort of more and more of is this better mapping of the problem you know through research efforts like this through the um, exhibition we're able to really get a sense of the scale of things um, one of the things that I think is useful to think about is where where do we go where do we go from here Esther you mentioned this kind of idea that typically uh, responses have been about well you know keep your chin up and just kind of tough it out and you know that Cheryl Sandberg leaning in kind of approach but actually I think what we're seeing is that this is systemic, this is far-reaching and really requires systemic solutions. Um, can you elaborate on that? What do you think is the way forward? I can uh, address this to start with and then would be happy to have Eleni jump in. I mean, I think part of the thing about bias and discrimination against, uh, against specific subgroups of physicians, whether it's by gender or race or ethnicity or sexual orientation or disability or whatever it is, um, we tend to get stalled on simply describing the problem uh, in very superficial terms. Um, and so one thing I don't really want to see is another quantitative study laying out the statistics on gender discrimination, bias, and inequities in salary promotion and rank. You know, I don't need to see, I don't know how you feel, Lenny, I don't need to see another study. It's like every year or so, another study comes out showing that the salary gap has not narrowed um, and is probably getting worse. And we all kind of wring our hands and then we go back to business as usual. And so I think what was what felt good about this study is that we're moving a little bit down the road in terms of um, the, the natural history of research about a problem in healthcare. I mean, what do we do for any other problem? If, if, if you know, gender discrimination was a disease, we wouldn't just keep on observing it, you know? So um, if we were talking about, say, diabetes, we wouldn't just come out with a paper every few years saying, it seems that, you know, a lot of people in the population still have high sugars. You know? <laughs> you know, I think we'd start to dive into the underlying pathophysiology, which would enable us to then propose therapeutic solutions that we could test for, you know, efficacy and effectiveness. And so um, when I think about this problem, I think of, um, uh, uh, okay, so we're done sort of characterizing the problem in this quantitative way. This study is, is a little bit further down, right? We Now we're pushing to um, a deeper dive, which is why the qualitative methods were so satisfying for this study. We could really start to unpack uh, some of the specific experiences and mechanisms for what we have observed in quantitative data before. Um, this is the kind of thing that gets us to really understand what is happening on the ground to women. Uh, and hopefully that will lead to some ideas and creative problem thinking around solutions that we can then test. So to me, this is moving a little bit further down towards, uh, towards the solutions. I mean, the solutions are going to be many and complex. Um, and so it will take a lot of work to get there. But with this problem, we really haven't moved towards solutions. And so that's where our body of work is going. I, I'm struck by something that um, you said earlier, which is about this sort of growing evidence that um, when you don't have an equitable workplace in healthcare, it's bad for patients. It's bad for kind of clinical outcomes. And to me, that seems 
you know, depressing as it is, if you can't make the kind of uh, moral, moral, ethical argument, that that should at least compel policymakers, whoever's in charge of these kind of decisions, to really try and change things. Do you think? Do you think that's widely enough known? Is there is there evidence for that? That you know, this is good for patients. Yeah. Well, uh, the. I think the moment it really came to the consciousness of a wider group of people, um, this fact that equity is really about patient care is when we saw the report that came out in June from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. Um, for people not familiar with the report, it was um, it was an overview of the literature on sexual harassment in academia in the sciences, engineering, and medicine, and it showed that this problem was highly prevalent the the most prevalent in medicine and uh, and that it was it had devastating outcomes really not just for the target of harassment but for the entire working group of that encompassed that person witnesses of the harassment and actually the entire organization so um, it didn't provide a direct direct link for patient care but it certainly implied it um, because it showed that uh, that harassment is much more than um, an isolated incident between two people. It really is like a toxin in the way that its negative effects spread across the workplace. You know, so you have a workplace that's has high tolerance for harassment and there are lots of incidents of harassment going on. It is likely that that entire organization is suffering. Um, there's two other pieces of it. One is from the corporate world. You know, we look at these big companies like McKinsey and Accenture who have been doing workplace diversity studies and consistently showing that diversity in the workforce and in the leadership um, provides um, uh, a statistical likelihood that you will have higher than average financial returns. Um, This is why the corporate world is all over this issue um, and very interested in figuring out how to consistently diversify their workplace and their leadership because it's better for their bottom line, which is financial returns. You know, in our case, our bottom line is, of course, you know, profit on some level in the U.S., but also it's really, I mean, we, we would all say, I think that our bottom line is improving patient care. Um, and so if diversity improves financial returns for the corporate world, um, will it re- improve um, patient outcomes, our bottom line in the healthcare world? Um, and there is really a pretty strong literature that it does. I mean, there have been uh, a number of recent studies showing that if you bring women into a healthcare workplace, Outcomes improve, not just for women physicians, but also for male physicians. In other words, having a diverse workforce really lifts everybody up and allows us to give better care for our very diverse patient population. So I think that link from equity, inclusion, respect, and safety to um, to improve patient care is uh, is a very easy, um, you know, it's a very easy um, uh, relationship to make. And what you're talking about, it's, I guess it's not just about women, it's about um, having a diverse workforce on on many fronts and being kind of intersectional about things, I guess. Very much so. You know, gender is a kind of easy one to talk about because the, there's so much data on it. But um, but there, uh, if you're looking at patient outcomes, and there is a great study published earlier this year where they took uh, black men from the community and randomized them to either a black provider or a white provider. And they found that the the um, preventive health care that the patients accepted when they received uh, a black provider was um, was significantly increased. And actually, if you extrapolate it out to the health benefits of that, um, uh, of having a uh, racial concordance with your physician, um, it could almost eliminate the white-black uh, health care 
health outcome gap that we see among young men. And so um, these are huge health benefits uh, by providing some diversity that allows us to look more like our patient population on a number of different characteristics. It's fascinating. Uh, thank you. I mean, it really seems like there is um, some momentum uh, behind behind this. That we've talked about this kind of growing body of evidence. Eleni, are there any um, sort of uh, campaigns or um, I don't know, even sort of legislation or policy changes that you can see coming down the line that might help address this? I certainly think that solutions are our next step and our priority, having documented the scope and size of the problem. And this will take more than uh, researchers or individual hospitals alone. It will take the um, input and enthusiasm and willingness to change from many different stakeholders. Um, So I see campaigns, awareness being part of that. I think we need the buy-in of major medical organizations, um, of of hospitals, of academic medical centers, as well as of individual, both men and women physicians uh, who experience these, uh, these situations in their daily work life. Uh, so I think that the time for change is now and it's time to focus on solutions. Thank you, Eleni. Uh, and in the spirit of ending on a bit more of a positive note, Esther, um, we can even be a bit jovial about all of this. I wanted to give a shout out to your other Christmas BMJ article, which is about a new lexicon for gender bias in academia and medicine, which I love and which is getting a lot of love on social media and on our website as well. I think it taps back into something that you were both talking about earlier is this kind of recognizing this sort of depressingly familiar problem and what I'm seeing a lot of people saying when they read these new terms is like oh my god I'm so glad there's a name for that you know people these are sort of shared experiences that people seem to be having and in fact one of the I'm seeing some mysteria around um, the the article itself as well (laughs) Um, so can you just talk to us a little bit about how that came about yeah I um uh, a big theme of mine, uh, I guess a big interest of mine has been making women understand that these experiences are so common and it's not about them. And so I had this experience for years because I was involved in women's groups and I had some leadership roles where people would come to me for mentorship and say, this thing happened to me. I'm just wondering how I can present myself better or how I can do better next time. And I was like, you are, you know, the 50th person who has been talked over at a meeting like that. Or, you know, uh, you are, it's not your fault that when they introduced the panel, they called everybody doctor and not you. Um, Or, um, you know, a lot of us would sit in conferences and be like, wow, this is like the fifth panel where there's one or zero women in it. And and I just realized that people, um, especially people starting out, think it's just, it's unique to them and that that it's somehow their fault. And so I think bringing, drawing them out and naming them makes people understand that they're universal and they should not take it personally when it happens um, and that there is an aspect that relates to gender bias and discrimination. And so, um, you know, some of these things I have joked about my, my husband and I love puns and wordplay and kind of joked about these things and had a lot of fun actually putting them down on paper. Um, the other author, Glaucon Flecken, uh, which is a, um, 
a pseudonym. Um, he is a, uh, a comedian who's also a physician and is a friend. And he uh, did a project where he offered to do infographics on any topic. And so I chose gender bias as my topic. And I made a contribution to this um, nonprofit that he was supporting. And in return, he created a brief infographic with a couple of these terms. And then, um, uh, you know, and that, that got a lot of attention. And so it kind of inspired us to to push out a more well-developed lexicon for general consumption. So it was it was nice to see it in the BMJ. And I have, you know, the response has been really hilarious. I mean, it's been a combination of people having these breakthrough moments of, oh, thank goodness, there's a term for this thing because I've been feeling so frustrated by it. And now I can repeat it with one word rather than having to explain the entire thing. Um, and then responses that really, um, uh, that kind of validate the fact that this is there. I mean, I... I do think I've, I've seen some mysteria responses um, and uh, and then a lot of uh, heartwarming responses where, um, you know, there was a there have been a lot of men who are like, um, thank you for the positive ones. You know, we put in a couple positive ones. So a lot of people said, I really want to be a promoter, a man who advocates for the advancement of women. Um, and that has been um, that has been heartwarming. And I think I think I really want to expand the lexicon to include a range of positive behaviors um, around allies and people who are really committed to correcting this so that it's not a complete downer. There we go. We're back to the solutions focus again. So, yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Esther, Eleni, Sarah, thanks so much for joining us for this BMJ podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. So that's it for this episode, but it's not it for Christmas. We'll be taking it a little bit easy over the festive period, but you'll have one more stocking filler from us. Just as you think you can put away your paperwork for the holiday, we'll be talking about coding. But don't worry, in an exciting way. Keep an ear out for that by subscribing on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. You know where that is. So have a lovely Christmas and we'll see you soon. I'm Navjoit Larder. Thanks for listening.